Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm happy to introduce our special guest this week, Irina. Hello. Glad to have you here as we are going to review Chicago, starring Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Tay Diggs, John C. Riley, Colm Fiore, Lucy Liu, Cheetah Rivera, Susan Minster, Denise Fay, Deirdre Goodwin, Ekaterina Cheknikolova, and I'm not saying that again, <laughs> Queen Latifah, Richard Gere, directed by Rob Marshall, based on the smash hit Broadway musical by John Kander, Fred Ebb, and Bob Fosse. This one was released in 2002 on a $45 million budget, and it grossed over $300 million at the box office and won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Now, we're talking about this as a second part of our November series on musicals here on Filmstrip. Last time, I reviewed Sound of Music with Mike from Amateur Arturs. So I wanted to pair that with a more modern movie that also won Best Picture, was you know, had a big box office and all that kind of stuff. That's how we got to Chicago. Now, Irina, you came to Filmstrip by way of co-host Ron, who you've known for many years. And he and I had a discussion on another show about how Hollywood is perpetually fascinated by adapting stage musicals into movies. And he said, you definitely got to talk to Irina if you want to review one of those on the show, because you've been involved in musical theater yourself. <laughs> yeah, Ron wasn't lying. Um, I, I, my parents always told me I was kind of born in a trunk, traveling stage to stage. Um, my mom was a choreographer, stage manager, ballet teacher. There, there really wasn't anything she didn't do in community theater, right down to being pregnant and Fiddler on the Roof. You know, she was seven months pregnant with me when she did that show. So that's kind of my stage de- debut. That is awesome. So uh, how did you do? Did the crowd love you or did you know? I must have done pretty well because they kept asking me to come back. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) Now, Chicago was a film I was aware of, but I had never seen before this review. And when it won Academy Award, it was in that time in my life when I would watch the Oscars every year. Didn't matter what was nominated. In fact, I would go and try to see as many of the Best Picture noms as I could. This was one I had missed because musicals, eh, musicals as movies are not really my big thing. I actually like watching stage musicals, but eh, as a movie form, I, I kind of found them hit or miss. So I don't know this one that well uh, beyond just a couple of times watching it for this review. Well, I've seen it, uh, I'd love to say a handful of times, but it's probably like 10, 12, maybe upward of 20 times. And um, only because I was so obsessed with it when it came out. I remember uh, a friend of mine got it on VHS before I did. So they made me like a bootleg copy of it so I can watch it. Oddly enough, one I've never performed or been involved in, aside from watching my mom uh, stage manage it when I was young. I can imagine managing this uh, because one thing that I I dove down the rabbit hole on with it was the the soundtrack, the the more modern one that has come out. And I, I even listened to the original 1970s one that won like the Tonys and everything. But I listened to a more modern version of it. Um, I did listen to a little bit of the movie one because I had I had a good bit of driving to do recently, so I ended up in the car for like six and seven hours at a time. And so I just you know found the the musical and threw it on and just listened to it and listened to several songs over and over. And then I like went to YouTube and started finding like various productions of different numbers just to see how they were done in different ways. And that's always kind of cool to watch to me like the the first musical i ever saw uh, in person, I was in high school and my brother was graduating from college. We were in New York City. I saw Miss Saigon on Broadway, which was a blew my mind because I went into this going like, man, this is going to suck. I'm not going to like this, you know, whatever. Uh, Cause I was way too cool for the room at 16. Uh, imagine that. And <laughs> so I, I was like, nah, I don't really know how this is going to go. But then I just got mesmerized by it, loved everything. And I was really blown away by how they put all that together and watching the stage come together. And flash now to this, and I had no idea what to expect in this movie. Generally, when musicals are made into movies, the narrative just plays out in front of you, and the musicals just sort of happen as part of the stuff. This is a different take completely. It's like, let's shoot what would be a stage rehearsal of the number, and then we'll flash to like what's actually happening in the real world. 
Yeah, they really did kind of give you a dream sequence to this. So you had that juxtaposition of the fantasy versus reality, um, really pulled it through with how they costume and colored everything. So it, it is almost an exception to the, um, the cliche movie musicals from, you know, the, the 50s, 60s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different than like Sound of Music, which is what we're pairing this with, which is just, you just see all of that play out in Austria and they're just singing and dancing along the way. Whereas, or even something like Mary Poppins, which just sort of happens and they mm-hmm. just break into song, right? Um, or even, you know, a grand musical like The Great Muppet Caper, where they just break into song in London or whatever, or in sets wow. that are supposed to be London. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's my musical there movie knowledge right there. So. Yeah, there is some magic to, to the musical movie and the this one, I think just because of the nature of the script, it lended itself to, uh, you know, have a little bit more of the fantasy aspect thrown in. Though I will say, you know, if we go back to those older musicals, they always had a dream sequence. There was always a ballet in the middle of Oklahoma, in the middle of Carousel. There was always some sort of dream sequence ballet. But this, uh, you know, it, it, it stepped away from that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all about daydreaming in jail or daydreaming <laughs> at the club or daydreaming in court. Uh, well, I mean, what else is there to do in jail but daydreaming? I, I don't know. I've never been and don't want to find out. So, uh, but let, let's talk about the movie here for maybe the uninitiated. Do a quick plot summary, then we'll get into this thing. So Renee Zellweger plays Roxy Hart, a bored wife to a mechanic in 1920s Chicago, and she longs to be a part of the jazz singer-dancer lifestyle following her idol, Velma Kelly, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. However, after her boyfriend confesses that he doesn't really have any connections to the clubs like he's promised, Roxy shoots him after a fight. And at first, her husband, Amos John C. Riley, covers for her, but eventually he lets on that he knows Roxy was two-timing him. So Roxy is sent to Cook County Jail, where she meets several other murderesses, or alleged murderesses, we should say, including Velma, who is there for killing her sister, that was part of her act, and her cheating husband. In fact, all the women seem to have killed an unfaithful or somewhat annoying spouse, loved one, and Roxy's only hope is a slick-talking, money-grubbing lawyer, Billy Flynn. Roxy and Billy successfully manipulate press coverage for her case in her favor, and Roxy even fakes a pregnancy, spurring her husband to finally divorce her, thus winning her even more sympathy with the jury. But the prosecution's star witness turns out to be Velma, who cut a deal to save her own neck and try to set up Roxy with a fake diary, but Flynn and Roxy's razzle-dazzle is enough to get her acquitted. However, before she can cash in on her newfound notoriety, another alleged murderer steps up her game and shoots her lawyer on the courthouse steps, and who hasn't dreamed about that? Roxy and Velma struggle to make a dent in showbiz until they team up together as Chicago's two dancing, singing, shooting women to much fanfare as credits roll. And that's about the best plot summary I can give you. I think that's the thing that surprised me most about this was really how simple a through line it was because having no background with it at all, I worried I wouldn't be able to follow what was happening because I, I talked to Mike about this. I had to like really think about what was going on in Sound of Music sometimes because you just kind of get lost in the beautiful mountains and Julie Andrews' voice and you forget that there's actually a story happening <laughs> not all of us get lost in sound of music but that's you know that's another opinion we can save that for another time but this <laughs> one it, it's really it's really actually straightforward there's no there's no way you can get lost because they do bounce from fantasy to reality fantasy reality you're you're immersed in it almost yeah, I mean, it's obvious when they go from one to the next. Sometimes, I, I know what you're talking about with the, that those dream sequences and things like that. Sometimes you get lost in a movie and not know if you're in the dream or if the dream's the other side of the movie or whatever. Here, it's very uh-huh. clear when we're going to cut to the dream sequence because the big stage appears out of nowhere, like to the left. And then we all start. It's almost like beauty school dropout in Greece when <laughs> Frenchie is just sort of daydreaming at the malt shop. And then all of a sudden Frankie Valley and like heaven comes down or some nonsense and, and pink <laughs> hair and all that other stuff. Right. But that, that's what happens. <laughs> exactly. And this huge set of stairs. Right. And that's what happens here. Um, even like in the middle of actual sequences, it's kind of neat to say. So I, I will say from the outset, before I give my full review of you know, what I thought of the movie or whatever, that technique I thought was a smart way to present this to a film audience because how are you, this thing's been around since the 20s. How are you going to make anything new out of it? It's even been made into a silent picture before. It's, you know, it's got famous stars attached to it from across the decades. So you got to get this interesting cast together and you've got to have a setting and a place and a way to stage it that makes it look very different than what your standard movie musical might be. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to, to their credit, they didn't just do the transition from fantasy to reality. They were able to do it with uh, lighting effects and the stage. So it was you went from a much more toned down appearance with them in jail to the, the flooding of the lights and everything on stage. So, I mean, it did make it easy for anyone who isn't a musical theater goer to follow, but it also made it more interesting for an audience to you know, pay attention to and watch, whereas some might tune out the whole, uh, the whole musical aspect. Yeah, now, can they keep us engaged the whole time through? We'll talk about that as we get into it. I, I think you're right. If you kind of follow the soundtrack here, it's one of the things I love about musicals is if you just follow the soundtrack, you kind of get the story of the movie to play out in front of you. Though this one, all the titles are like from 90s alt-rock band world or something because they have nothing to do with maybe what's happening. You know, they're just sort of arbitrary lines thrown in there and you don't know what, what does that mean? What's the uh, cell block tango and all this kind of stuff. And the story is actually much more, but at least it gives you a good plotting point to, to walk through. Having seen it, I knew listening to the soundtracks, kind of what was coming up, where we were going and all that. And there's definitely a point where I felt like it kind of dipped and then came back and we can get into that. But let's start with the movie does here where we've got Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma running into the club because she's going to be late for her you know, number and the thing that got me immediately was that Tay Diggs is on the piano and he is talking and he's going to be the narrator because I knew there was a narrator for this thing and I was like I'm I'm now sold at least initially because you put the coolest person that you could possibly find in 2002 in this movie front and center to introduce everything to us oh absolutely and and he's just so slick about it and and subtle um it's a narrator somebody that could have been absolutely over the top but he just plays it nice cool and calm yeah i go back to my miss saigon thing when i saw that the engineer who's really the narrator of that story if you know it is such a slime ball and, it, and he's comic relief and he's just a sleaze the whole way through and that i mean you could have done that here but it's better that he's just a guy in the band you know and he's just there to do his job and having been sometimes the guy in the band um, at different times in my life i could appreciate that i was like oh wow this is gonna be fun and i, I dug the whole little jazz riff in and all that kind of stuff it's not a style of music i tend to listen to but I like what was going on, and I like the sort of harried bit that they just throw us into this thing. We have no setup at all other than, you know, big lights, and there's Catherine Zeta-Jones running around, throwing clothes off and on, trying to wash blood off her hands before, so she can take the stage. And we know, because I'm such a live theater fan, that, that there's part of me that's kind of like, wait, but this is how it was done on stage. <laughs> I, I, I have to take away from that and say, okay, this is how it was done in the movie. Um, it was effective, because, and I'm going to divert for a moment because in the stage play um, you don't see Velma uh, go through any of that. Um, you see none of that. So what the movie brought to us was this visualization of what Velma went through and her realization that, Oh crap, I killed somebody. Um, so I, I really appreciated that backstory being in there. It's not only, oh, I've killed somebody, it's, oh, I'm late for my show. That's what I found hilarious well, about it, is that she's harried <laughs> by the fact that, like, oh, gosh, I'm going to be late. Never mind the fact that I, had, that I had to murder people, you know. <laughs> Priorities. I can't tell you how many times I've run on stage without eating or anything. <laughs> and then I look at people and I say, oh, whoops, I don't have that. Okay, on so, we go. See the, but it is, it's always, you know, the show must go on. Yeah, the best part about being in a rock band is it didn't matter what time you started, didn't matter what time you finished, mm -hmm. just as long just as long as you were sort of in tune and kept people moving. That was that was the best part of, of my gigs. But yeah, but no, I, I had a lot of friends that did theater and stuff like that, and they always talked about like just the adrenaline rush and then also the actual physical rush you are in to try to do all of this. This is a pretty big opening number. We get all that jazz, which I'm gonna confess, I knew that song, did not know it was from Chicago. Did not know it was from Chicago. I had seen that like stage by you know, my high school was really big in a theater in Alabama. So I saw people do this all the time, but I never paid attention to what it was from. And like I, I knew it as a, just a classic show tune, had no idea it was from Chicago. Oh, well, I guess we'll have to forgive you on that one. <laughs> I have come into this as the newbie. So that's why I'm I'm leaning to you here, though. This song as an opener is it's different than most openers. Most openers I've found have, are real big, 
or they're real like sweet and soaring or something like that. And this one is just kind of trashy and flashy. Well, we're we're <laughs> we're talking about a movie that's about murder. It's about murder. It's about jail. It's about being trashy and flashy. I mean, that's really what. Um, what they're trying to get across. So using all that jazz as an opener gets you, it gets you revved up and puts you physically into the almost anxiety of, of that pre-show jitter thing that's going on. Um, There's no easing into it, but again, there's no easing into that feeling of, Hey, I'm going to go stab my husband (laughs) unless somebody's prepared for that. But that's, you know, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. It's another Um, dotting here. (laughs) <laughs> but um I, I mean i i actually enjoy the fact that it is faster paced as opposed to other musicals that kind of drag along in the beginning i agree it, it throws you right in and we get our two leads right out of the gate you got Catherine zeta jones on the stage doing her thing and she's tearing it up and then you cut to roxy played by renee zellweger who is watching from the back of the room, kind of fantasizing, wanting to be a part of this, but most assuredly not a part of it. Now, what do you make of Renee Zellweger just in general? Renee Zellweger, God love her. She was fabulous in other movies. This one, I just, there's something about her that's a little too whiny. And despite the fact that she's smiling through her entire entrance into this number, all I can look at is the fact that it feels like she just got out of the dentist and she's got like gauze stuck in her cheeks or something. (laughs) (laughs) The comparison between her and Catherine Zeta-Jones is, it's just so much different. Now, you know, one of the things we have to remember is that in filming this uh, movie, I think Catherine Zeta-Jones was like six months pregnant or something. Which is crazy, right? I mean, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and I've done shows pregnant, but not like this. <laughs> but yeah, the comparison, and then they, they really just throw Renee at you. There's no build-up, no introduction. It's just all of a sudden she's in the middle of the song singing it. It's not the same key. It's not the same tone. And for me, it's just an absolute turnoff. Thank you for saying that it's not in the same key, because at my ears, again, I'm, I'm, I play music, but I don't read music, so I just play by ear, but I was going like... It's like we just switched soundtracks all of a sudden, like suddenly in the middle of it. And and I got finally, I was like, oh, they had to rekey it for her. I get it now. And I'm like, well, first off, kudos to the orchestra for figuring that out because those transitions are never easy. I mean, it's like, and they do it like on a switch, which is great. And then hearing her come in and do it, um, I, I'm with you. I'm going to say this right now. I've never seen her do anything I like. She's been in good movies, but I don't think they were good because of her. And I'll, I'll tell you what I really bump up against when it comes to Renee Zellweger is the fact that she always looks like she's staring directly into the sun when she's talking. And I can't, I just can't grasp that. Like if I can't make eye contact with you, even through the screen, I have a hard time latching into you at all. And I, I could get why they would pick her for a role like this because she is a, stark contrast from Catherine Zeta-Jones in almost every possible way. So it's good casting on that end, but I'm, I'll just say right now, I do not like her. I never have liked her in anything. It's nothing personal. I just do not like her performances. But, I mean, the only thing I liked her in was Empire Records, but, you know, it was Empire Records, so who's going to say anything bad about that? Confession, have never seen it. Oh, God, we need to do another episode. I, that's it. Brian would agree with you because he's, he says all the time, like, how have you not seen it? I know it's on, like, the list of stuff that I've never seen. And I know what it is. I've just never seen it. Didn't know she was in it. So, wow. Okay. N- next thing on your list. <laughs> but um, I liked her in Empire Records. I liked her in Bridget Jones' Diary. I felt she was severely miscast in this. I felt we could have even gone back to like the stage play where BB Newworth played the part, played, she played Velma on Broadway, but she could have flipped the switch and played, you know, Roxy if she needed to. Um, That would have totally worked now that you say it. Like in my head, I'm going like, oh, that's so much better. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, BB Newworth is amazing. There's, there's no arguing there, but um, the, the key change, it just, it's a sour moment. Um, You get Catherine who's, killing it, as you said, literally and figuratively. Um, and the, the, the key change, the switch in tonality between the voices, it just hurts. And I think that is why I watched it so many times because I was like, there's something off about this, but, but I love it. 
and it wasn't Renee. It was everybody else. Yeah, everybody else makes this work. And even they they wisely switch back out of this and back to Catherine Zeta-Jones. We're speeding it up. We're getting near the end. We're kind of doing the review. And Roxy runs off with Fred. Dominic West, who I've seen in so many things, he's always kind of like the jackhole friend or brother or, <laughs> or boyfriend or something. I just think he's typecast. Sorry. I understand he's quite nice. Uh, but he always just gets <laughs> plays these kind of roles. And I like it, though. And, you know, they get caught making out in the hallway. And it's obvious. I'm like, well, this is clearly not her husband because, one, I, yeah, I've been married. And I love my wife a long time. But married people don't act like that. And, and two, um, she was really intoxicated, clearly. And then the neighbor comes out and she lays that whole, it's my brother. And I'm like, eh, no. Yeah, Even in the 20s, that was, that was wrong. Yeah. Right. So, But they give us a great ending, though, because it ends on Catherine Zeta-Jones and just a big smash. And then the cops are at the end of the show. And I'm like, damn, it's like Grand Theft Auto or something. My husband and I watched this, rewatched this together, and there was one point I may have fallen asleep. It might have been like for five minutes while Roxy was on the screen, but you know. But um, I, I literally, I'm going back to your Dominic West comment. I turned to my husband. I said, "I think this guy has been a d bag in every movie I've ever seen him in." Yes. <laughs> It's awful, and he's just got that smarmy look on him, like he's going to sell you a really crappy car, and and then essentially he sells her a really crappy deal. He really does. I mean, he is basically screwing her because he's lied to her and says, well, I just had to you know, get a piece of that. So I, I have all these connections at these clubs because that's her dream, right? She's married to a mechanic. She's bored. She's also kind of stupid, and that's really annoying in the in the way this movie plays out. And she is just you know letting herself go along for this ride because she thinks once I'm famous, it won't matter all the stuff that I do. And obviously, you know, she gets caught up in the in the mix of it. And well, uh, there's some problems for that. You know, I think I could have forgiven Renee if she had continued to play Roxy as stupid and didn't try to play her smart as she went along through the movie. But she just kept getting brighter and brighter. And it completely threw me off because I thought, no, that's that's not okay." But um, at at the end, when we we hear Velma at one point in the movie, we do hear Velma talking about uh, the killing of her husband and sister is I appreciate her staccato emphasis on on her quote there. And we can get to that further because I think she says it in a different number. So we'll we'll get there. But um, remind me to come back to that and why I loved it so much. Oh, look, I'll tell you right now, outside of Tay Days, Catherine Zeta-Jones is the only other reason to even bother with this movie because she is amazing. Oh, yeah. Yes, she is fabulous. And the fact that she told me she did this doing six months pregnant, I'm like... Wow, first off, great camera work because not noticeable. And second, holy cow, what a performance. And from what I read, like there's not a ton of stunt dancing. Like she did almost all of it. No, I think I think she did all of it. Um I think they really just worked uh with her in order to do the appropriate choreography for her positioning, but she also um I think I read an interview once where she was talking about the corset that they had her in. If you if you watch it very closely and look at the costume, she's always in a full tied up corset. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, they hit it perfectly. The nice thing though here is Velma looks just like just a normal, natural woman. Catherine looks like just a normal woman, not some sickly skinny person who lost 60 pounds in order to be in a movie and then had to gain 40 pounds back to do a, a, you know, the second movie called, Bridget Jones Diary 2 or whatever the heck it was called. <laughs> no, I, I agree. She This is the thing I've always liked about Catherine Zeta-Jones. She looks like a real person. And I don't mean that like in a negative way, but Hollywood has a stereotype and, and stuff like that. And I always appreciate the fact that she looks like a real person. And so, yeah. and, you know, she's she's definitely much taller than the average actress, and she carries herself with a lot of confidence, and she's fun. That, that's the thing I get from this. Renee Zellweger is trying to show me through her squinty-eyed, over-emoting, cotton-balls-in-the-mouth face that I'm having so much fun. I'm sad. I'm th- And I'm just like, it's so friggin' fake. And like, I'm totally absorbed by Catherine Zeta-Jones and Tay Diggs. And I, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't like the dude, but like Richard Gere totally absorbs into the, his role. We'll get to him in a little while. But everyone else seems to be able to sort of just fall into what they are. And Renee Zellweger is trying too damn hard. Well, you know, the rest of them are actors. <laughs> Good point. 
mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones is very genuine. She has embraced the part. She is playing a part. Um, John C. Riley's amazing in this movie. Oh, he's I great. love him. He is the sweet, stupid, and I want to say country bumpkin kind of guy, even though it's in the middle of New York City. But he's just a, he's the guy next door. He's just some dude trying to get through life, and he loves his wife, and he you know he wants to stick up for her. But um, but Renee's performance is so ingenuine it makes me batty and it, and it just throws it off because everybody else's performances are super up top and hers, hers just doesn't reach them you know it's that the elevator doesn't go all the way to the top i agree and i'm glad you brought up john c Riley. he is funny in in this he's funny in almost anything he's ever done even when if it's unintentional that guy is has such good timing. He has a very genuine voice. He can sing. And I love how her Renee's first number, Roxy's first number, we should say is funny, honey. And it's all about, you know, Oh, my sweet doting, stupid husband who doesn't know any better. Just loves me so much. He'll even lie for me and murder. So at first it's all this, yeah, there was a burglar and a struggle for the gun and that, da, 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 da. but the cops are not dumb. They, they're like, man, come on. And they eventually lead him down the road and he finally just gives her up. Up. And when he does, he's like, yeah, of course she was two-timing me. What'd you expect me to say? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. And then she, it, throughout the song, she goes to that whole the, the whole thing of, um, uh, at the end, she says, you know, if they string me up, I'll know who bought the twine. No! No, girl, you buy your own twine. I know, right? It's husband. not his fault that you shot somebody that you were <laughs> screwing on the side. Fault. Yeah, it's not his fault that you're an idiot. It really isn't. He's, he's figured it out and, and you know, that's like all the times O.J. Simpson has blamed Nicole Brown for having her own head cut off almost. I mean, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she just helped him. She gave him, you know, every... Oh. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, she's totally her own worst enemy. He finally gives her up. So we get through that number. I gotta be honest with you, the funny honey goes on a little long for me. I'm like, uh, let's just come on. We we had a great up-tempo number, and now we've brought the band down. I'm not a big fan of that song. Yeah, and... I feel like they extended it for the movie. They may have, I don't know, the soundtrack versions are both about long. Even listen to the, the you know, the Broadway soundtrack uh, cast. I, I thought, oh, this one's kind of going a little longer than I want it to. But it's telling a story. It is a good narrative song. And it gets us to the next point. Because the whole point is we've got to get Roxy in jail, right? Mm-hmm. And we've got to get her in jail so we can introduce a fabulous character Though I or a fabulous actor who has a character that I don't think she knows what to do with, and I'm not really sure what they're trying to do with her, but it just seems weird. Queen Latifah comes in next, and I love Queen Latifah. I remember when she was just a a, a rapper, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then she started doing movies, and I was like, man, she has such natural presence. She's so smooth and calm. You know, some singers can transition into movies and it works. Some eh, not so much, you know. But Queen Latifah is one of those that you just put her on screen and she can just be like accentuated versions of herself. And I like her, but I got to tell you, I don't love the When You're Good to Mama song. Uh, so I love When You're Good to Mama, maybe because part of me really wants to play Mama someday. Um, <laughs> but, but I felt um, that, A, I love Queen Latifah. She's too pretty for the part. She's just too pretty. So when they gussy her up, there isn't that much of a change between her jail look and her onstage mama look for the fantasy. So we really don't get that much of, you know, that much of a change. It isn't as exciting. Um, I think what the movie did that the stage play doesn't do is they made it a bit too sexy. Um, And there are a lot of subtle references to, you know, the weird things that go on in jail, you know, and I, and I think that rather than things being a trade off, you know, give me this and I'll give you that, you know, trade me cigarettes for your stockings or something like that. I think that they, they kind of go a little too far with it, with the, the sex. It's, it's almost too much. It's too stereotypical at that point, mm-hmm. like for me, and it's almost too early to introduce something like that. And I didn't need that for this. I could have totally bought it if she was the kind of person that can get things done for you in jail. Cause that's always in a jail story, right? There's always somebody that Absolutely. can get you what you need. You know, I, I, my wife and I are big fans of prison break, you know, and Cena mm-hmm. is the guy that can always get something in and out, you know, cause he was a logistics guy in the army. And so 
You got all of that. And I like Queen Latifah's presence, but I do feel like you, it's a little over-sexualized and it didn't need to be in a movie that is completely over-sexualized in a lot of ways. This role didn't need it because I would have bought it if it was just the, you needed extra shampoo. That's going to be, you know, two smokes from you or whatever. You know, we, we could have done that. I'm glad we're on the same page. And one of the things that I'm actually going to bring up, but in the stage soundtrack, when You're Good to Mama actually shows up as the fifth song in the show instead of the third. Mm-hmm. So you actually have the cell block tango happen right before When You're Good to Mama. So it kind of sets the tone for everything a little bit better instead of throwing you into this whole sexuality thing, um, which I think if they had kept things in order, then it would have given us that, that, that ease that we needed to enjoy the song a bit more. I agree. It was it was too much at once. And if you had reversed those numbers, it would have worked better. And I got to tell you, like you're getting to what may be my favorite number of the whole thing. And I know that's bad because we're only a third of the way through the movie, <laughs> or whatever. But and I knew that, you know, watching it, I was like, oh, I don't know if it's ever going to get any better than that. And that's a shame, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I got an hour to go. Cellblock Tango is awesome. It is full of humor. It is full of fun. It's full of a ton of plot. And it is absolutely knocked out of the park by every one of the performers that lays it out. You've got all of these women in jail for killing someone for varying degrees of things. He popped his gum too loud. He was married to me and like five other people. My sister was two timing with my brother. And so that ended our double act. You've got all this stuff and you've got the Hungarian lady that are Russian that just speaks only in that, that language or whatever. So you don't know what it is, but they're finally like, I don't know what you said, but did you do it? No, not guilty. And I, there's, there's humor in it, but the song is great too. And it's a great tango. I loved the true to style, the, the style of Fosse, who, you know, it was involved in the original production. They kept it very clean as far as the choreography and the, the lighting in all of the filming was perfect. You knew exactly what was going on, whether it was in shadow or whether it was right up front. And I really, really appreciate the use of red and red, black and white in all of the costuming that they did for this. Um, but using the scarves of the blood was just super exciting because then you didn't have that messy look, but you still got that flash of red with all the ladies dressed in black. And I have to ask, is that part of the stage production or whatever? Because that's a genius touch. 100%. That's how it's done in every single show. There's no blood on stage, but the, the, and, and scarves are used exactly how they did in the movie. So this was super true to form reflection of a stage production. Well, it's a great number. It's a ton of fun. It sort of sets up everybody's story, but particularly Velma's story. So now we know what she got arrested for. We, you know, you could kind of put that together as an audience member. Even I knew I was like, well, obviously she killed her sister and, but I didn't realize the husband was involved, but now we know. And you know, we get, we get all the reveal there we need. But the thing that really nailed me about this one and what I loved about it was the intro that they did to it. It was a water drops in the sink and somebody clacking their nails on the metal. And it was to Mm -hmm. the beat. And then it led into the song. And I'm like, if you can do interesting intros into your songs, I'm always a sucker for that. And so I love that. And I, I don't know if that's part of the stage production or not. I don't know how you would do it. But I love how they wrapped that into the movie and then just morphed us right into the song. Yeah, they don't do anything like that on stage. It's really done with drums and a slow beat. Um, but the, the fact that they were able to find something to replace the, the musical instruments in doing that with the drumming of the fingernails, with the droplet of water, it, it was absolutely um, flawless. Um, I also really loved the fact that they were able to show you a more dramatic change in the characters' appearances, too which gave us that, again, that separation of the fantasy versus reality. Here we see them all gussied up and in lingerie doing their dance. And then we go back into the prison and they're all dressed in their, you know, their, their gray dresses and looking pretty frazzled and everything. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. They, they go from stage to Shawshank in like one shot. but it's great that's good editing that's good i mean i'm sitting here watching this and i'm going like you know even what my ultimate review this will be i see again going on my theory that hollywood is just an easy sucker for these things too the academy is probably just sitting there just guffawing over itself with this just loving this you know because it's this kind of smart stuff that we do and then we get back to the narrative story and roxy's trying to you know befriend velma and gene having it 
at all. And I kind of like that because in any other story, it would be like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll help you out, kid, or whatever. Because everybody's pretty much been that way for Roxy, and I love how Velma's like, mm, nah, don't have time. Mm. <laughs> no, well, Velma's, Velma's in it for herself. She's not there to help anybody else. <laughs> She's there to make her case and get out. She, she doesn't. She thinks she doesn't need anybody. You know, she doesn't want to depend on anybody. And so she she pushes everybody away. I mean, if you think about it, psychologically, her husband and her sister, you know, backstabbed her basically. So she's not going to lend a hand to anybody. Yeah, she's not going to trust anyone. So everyone starts telling Roxy, including you know, Mama and Velma and everybody else, you got to get Billy Flynn. And my first note watching this was, casting Richard Gere as a slick lawyer seems like typecasting on the nose. <laughs> because he's played one so many times. <laughs> and it's and just, like, yeah. He's not good at it in this, though. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, though. <laughs> he, was, he was a great slimy lawyer in Pretty Woman. He was a great slimy lawyer in Primal Fear. If you've never seen that movie, go watch it. It's awesome. He's great in it. But he sucks in this movie. I'm just going to say it. He is horrible in this movie. In his defense, he is a romantic lead in Pretty Woman. He is not a slimy lawyer. So there's a difference here. He just he is just that slimy lawyer. You know, he, he doesn't owe anybody anything and um unfortunately i don't think that's a that's a richard gear thing he's much better as a romantic lead yeah but see what killed me is you had told me jerry orbach had done this and in the, in the uh, 70s version of the stage play that won the tonys mm -hmm. and i couldn't i get that out of my head and then i listened to him doing it and i was like oh that's so much better than anything isn't it does. beautiful yeah it's, <laughs> and it's so to... not what you would expect coming out of that big man with that big voice you know and to sing some of these numbers not what you oh. would expect well jerry orbach is just a you know a king among men, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it, but this part was perfect for Jerry. It is not perfect for Gear. Gear does not come across as strong. He comes across as weaselly. He's just a little mouse where he needs to, you know, be a, a some an imposing character. And Gear doesn't do it justice. Yeah, and his opening number is it's all about love for him, right? And I'm like, actually, isn't it all about the money? Because that's, that's the next thing out of his mouth every time somebody says, like, hey, take a little, you know, Roxy tries to, like, take some mercy on me. He's like, you got 5000 bucks. So. <laughs> well, he's trying. He's got to sell himself. There's There's got to be some sort of appeal to Billy Flynn to, to be the fatherly figure, the husband, the best guy friend, the guy who's going to take care of you. Because if you think about Orbach in that part, that's what he brings to what he brings to it. Even his voice and just singing it gives you that more genuine feeling. Whereas Gears is just a joke, uh, right down to his tap dancing. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll we'll get to the tap dancing. But he does a lot of public relations as much as law. And at one time in my life, I'd have been naive enough to go like, "That's not realistic." But I lived through the OJ trial, so I've seen this along with several other ones, and so that that's not uncommon. But what I did note was like, man, he's got a lot of cases going at the same time. The fact that he's able to keep all that up in the air at once is impressive as a character. Because I will say this: as much as I don't like Richard Gere, and I don't like his performance here, the Billy Flynn character is fun. He's the perfect supporting character to this cast, and particularly against Velma and Roxy. He's a lot of fun as a character. So I had to kind of put my Richard Gere hate aside and just sort of enjoy what the character was all about. No, absolutely. Um, and you, again, when you do put aside the fact that his performance is not up to, up to snuff, um, the, the character itself, as he moves and slithers, because we're going to use the snake analogy here, because he really is kind of a snake, um, as he slithers through all those cases and bounces back and forth from case to case, um, I, I think he has a notebook with him every time. So he's really good at um, keeping everybody separated, as you said. But um, the character itself is, as you said, a wonderful supporting role for Velma and Roxy. It ties everything together. It does, and we get to see him at the height of his powers. And I almost think they kind of they blow Billy Flynn's biggest you know trick early, but it's a good time narratively to do it. The puppet press conference routine, like okay, first off, I just watched the Sound of Music, where there's a weird puppet thing in the middle of that movie too. So we're just we're, we're weird puppets at all all fronts now. I'm just puppeted to death, um, and and Ron wants to do puppet master movies, so it's it's in my brain, oh God. right? But but. 
I gotta say, as a song, We Both Reached for the Gun is awesome. It is a great example of how to manipulate press, construct a narrative just by continually putting out the message you want to hear and you you wonder sometimes if somebody isn't just behind someone puppeting them. That said, the performance is weird. Renee Zellweger as a dummy. First off, props to her for just being slung around like that because I did find like a behind the scenes video of them rehearsing it and she does it exactly the same, but I, it is it is off-putting for such a cool and fun song to see those two weirdos try to act it out. But they, they made it ultra weird. And I think it, they were the second musical in the span of two years to come out. So they were really competing with Moulin Rouge at the time that came out in 2001. So they had to do something that was different, something that was exciting. Um, and I appreciate, again, as you said, and I'm going to keep saying, I agree with you because we seem to be on the same page about this. Um, her being tossed around like that is fabulous. Her physicality is wonderful. The way that they worked together to make that scene happen the way it did was great. I didn't need so much the puppetry and the back and forth in that number. I needed a little bit more. It it could have been less. And what was cool was when he stood up on, it was above everybody like Freddie and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 puppeting every, the press around. That was fun. I was like, ooh, that was kind of a, a cool shot to have, you know, massive Richard Gere up there doing that. Um, and it, even the whole interplay between them is it's too much sometimes when the strength of it is what they're actually singing and saying. And that's what really hit home for me was listening to the soundtrack. This was one that I went to back to as much as I did cell block tango in terms of just enjoying it as a song. It's a song that could only exist as part of a musical. Sometimes I feel like musicals, like some of the songs are structured so they can kind of live on the radio, you know, which is okay, but this is a song that could only live in the musical. Right. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I like the song. I hated the performance of it, but I like the song. Does that make sense? It absolutely does make sense. I, I mean, I can confess that this is the best musical theater warm up song ever. Um, <laughs> and I did sing it right before we came here so that I could uh, get, get my chops warmed up so I could speak without sounding like I had marbles in my mouth. But um, it isn't a standalone. You know, it isn't something that's going to be the single on, you know, the top 100 charts that came from a movie. It, you know, it's, it's no a whole new world from Aladdin at all. You have to have the context to it. Yeah, completely. And again, the context to it is great. It's he is constructing this narrative for Roxy was that it was a big struggle. It was a fight. We both reached for the gun and it just went off accidentally. And she's answering all these random questions about herself. Like, I don't know really how old I am. My parents are dead. I got to start at a convent. I, I ran off with a guy, you know, to get married, kind of got swept off my feet. So, oh gosh, how, what a poor thing, you know, and you've got Christine Bernarski over there doing that role uh, as the, uh, the, the reporter that that Flynn knows he can always manipulate. And w what's funny about that is, you know, and now you flash forward 17 years and just sort of how most of us look at the press and realize like, well, that one's friends with the person who's you know, telling the story. And like that, that's something we all accept and know now. But back in the setting of this in the twenties, everyone just believed it. Cause all that, how, how could the Chicago Tribune be wrong? Right. Um, and, and she's, I like Baranski because she's believable as somebody who's going to fall for whatever anybody tells her. Absolutely. Always is. And, and she's perfect for that. And I do like the back and forth that her and gear have in this, even though I think I got to say his voice is garbage. It is oh, bad. God. It's just bad. And I'm not a singer, but this is bad, particularly when I've heard the more modern Broadway version and even hearing Jerry Orbach do it. And I'm like, man, it's just, it's just bad. And I yeah, know he's and trying, but it's, it's bad. Yeah, he's a reminder in this part as <laughs> he's a reminder why uh, Matthew Broderick did not sing in The Lion King when he did the Simba voiceover. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's a reason that other people sang for Audrey Hepburn, too, um, because it's, it's, it's not in character. His speaking voice is fine, but once he gets into that singing, it's whiny nasally. I just want to tune out. And yeah. I do tune out every time he comes on. I think, okay, let's fast forward to the next scene because I want to see the next number. Um, and Baranski, she got, she kind of got gypped in this movie because in the stage play, she Mary Sunshine has several songs. 
Yeah, I noticed that, and I noticed it in the soundtrack too. And I thought, man, they really cut that part out to almost nothing, and that's a shame because it would have been neat to hear the voice of the manipulated press member sort of telling her side of all this. But I know we're trying to squeeze it into a two-hour movie or whatever, but still, like, that, there's other stuff that goes on here where we get Roxy sort of moping around that I'm like, I think we, we get it. Like, we don't need more of that. So replace that with at least one of the Mary Sunshine songs. Yeah, we don't need any more depressed Renee Zellweger. And I understand why they cut the songs. They cut the songs because of how the stage play is done. So in the stage play, Mary Sunshine's a man. It's played by a man. Oh, wow. Yep, so we, um, Mary Sunshine being played by a man on, in, on stage means we have to keep that illusion that this is a woman. Okay, so that's something and, I did not know. That's interesting. So that would have been oh, bold to go yay. with that. I mean, right? Like, that would have been bold to try to do that here. That would have been interesting to see. It would have it would have been bold, especially in two thousand two. Now I think we would see it if they yeah. redid. The I mean, but like if, if you got Nathan Lane to do this in two thousand and two, that tell me that wouldn't have worked. Oh my god, it would have been amazing, but we all would have known it was Nathan Lane. They would have to, had to have used somebody unknown in order to to keep up the the whole appearance of this being a woman. Because let's face it, we all know who Nathan Lane is, and we love seeing him in drag. Because he's so good at it, right? I mean, that's the thing. He's just he's made a life out of it in a lot of ways. But he's made a life out of being a singer and a performer. He could really do it. I'll tell you what, now that I'm fantasy casting this, let me have Nathan Lane as Billy Flynn. And then I would have been really happy. I would have been okay. Like, I could see that, too. That would work. Hell, Matthew Broderick could have worked at that, just get a different singer. So different singer. I mean, if I would cast somebody different if I had my druthers, but we 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 don't have to go back into that. We can we yeah. can fantasy cast it at another time. Exactly. So so we get Velma though now desperate to get back in the spotlight because Roxy has taken over the press. Like it's a, oh you know she they both reach for the gun. It's this big you know scandal or whatever. And Velma is like, okay, I want to be friendly now, but the tables have turned. And I gotta say, I love her. I can't do it alone routine because she basically goes through her and her sister's act but she plays both parts and i was like that is really cool to see an actor be able to spin like that and twist things around and it's all a manipulation that's the beautiful part is everything about this movie is about manipulation that's the overriding theme of all of it and to see her now try to do the nice manipulation is fun because the thing about Catherine Jada Jones is she always plays someone that you realize has one more card up her sleeve than she's letting you know about and so you just see it in her eye and it's it's such a cool fun number for her yeah this is the moment where they really play with the fact that Vilma's smarter than Roxy and I wish they had done that through the entire movie because with Roxy, I mean, Roxy's not smart. She is a a dumb girl who doesn't have a handle on life. She doesn't know what she wants. And here Velma sees that she's going to be able to take advantage of that. She sees that Roxy has no clue what she's doing. She's a desperate to get to spotlight, but she wants to get out of jail. And she realizes, wait, this chick's got the spotlight on her. Let's see if I can share it with her. If we do this together, then that's double the attention. But then again, we have Roxy in her dumb moments say, nah, I don't think so. Have a nice day. And then she pieces out. Right. But later on, she's smart enough to like concoct even a further better part of her defense. I'm with you that they should have kept playing her. Like she was from, she was Daisy from the great Gatsby. Cause that's exactly what I read off of this character. And uh-huh. if they had just kept through with that, that would have worked. And I, I can only imagine that the reasons they don't, it is totally because they had Renee Zellweger who plays the girl next door. Who's smarter than the average bear at the same time. That's sort of her whole character line and everything I've ever seen her in. And, it doesn't work in this role. That can work in other things. Though I said earlier, I didn't really like her and stuff. Her characters are interesting. She just gives performances that I can't watch. But here, it doesn't match with what I think is going on, is that she is naive. She is easily manipulated. That's how she got herself in this to begin with. And the fact that now she's too smart to be manipulated by the master manipulator just doesn't ring true. I mean, and, and we should say 15 minutes after she was a live puppet for Richard Gere. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden she's brilliant, right? Um, now, you know, one of the things that I find kind of amusing is that here um, with these two characters, you would think that they would cast it so that Velma could be a little bit older. She's older, wiser. She has 
and more experienced than Rossi. And Rossi, you'd think, would be like, you know, 19, 20, young girl, married an older guy type thing. But we have the, the casting done with Catherine Zeta-Jones is a year younger than Renee Zellweger. So we miss that whole use of the characters and their age to show Roxy is the more naive one and Velma as having this experience and wanting to guide her. Well, you know, I did not know that about the two actresses, that there was that difference in the age. I didn't know Renee Zellweger was older than Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I would have always thought Catherine Zeta-Jones was a little bit older because she plays so much more mature and so big. And I'm, I'm, I'm laying on a lot of having seen her in other things, too. But I always feel like she always plays someone who's got her stuff together a lot more than Renee Zellweger does. Yeah, well, even in this movie, she plays her older. She plays yeah. her more mature. Um, I mean, and that's the beauty of the two characters coming together. But we lose it as Roxy tries to get smarter. Um, and it's, and then she gets back into the whole try, trying to get that spotlight again, you know, after the I can't do it alone number. Yeah, she's going to come up with this baby story. You know, that's all a part of it. And I like this as a manipulation as part of it or whatever. I think it's smart. And I think it also leads us into a really sweet moment with John C. Riley playing his song, Mr. Cellophane, where I'm literally just the person you're looking through to see what you're really interesting in here. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's just very, it's very raw. It's the first time we really delve into the Amos character. I always go back to the stage shows and the different actors that did things. Um, Joel, Gray actually played this part, but here John C. Riley gives it that extra TLC, you know, the man who's having had his wife taken away and now his baby taken away and God, what did I do to deserve this? Um, And I enjoy the change of the battle between the women to see a softer male character. Well, you know what's neat about him is, and John C. Riley has made a career out of doing this, but he can sell the audience on he is always the second choice. He is always second place. You know, it's kind of his thing. And he sort of, and the fact that the Amos character kind of embraces that and just sort of goes with it. And look, as a man who definitely married way up in class, I understand. I am with you. You know, So I feel for this character in a way that maybe I wouldn't otherwise. But I like this guy because he is so raw. And he's probably the only honest one in this whole friggin' movie. Like if we just get down to it, he's the only, he only lied for like half a minute and then Confiori, who can be a real intimidating presence, definitely brought the truth out of him. And that's what I like about the Avis character and I like about the Mr. Cellophane song. Oh yeah. I mean, Mr. Cellophane, A, I remember seeing it as a four year old when my mom was doing a show and just dancing around and singing the song. So it has um, a little bit of nostalgia for me, but I also <laughs> You know, I look at my husband every day and I think, God, this guy lets me do all this theater. <laughs> he must feel like that sometimes. So, um, I, and, and God love him because he is so supportive downstairs with the kids right now. <laughs> While we sit here and chit chat about this movie. But um, no, and, and you're right. I've seen him in other films. He does play the second choice very well. So we, we get the hanging of the foreign girl because we have to have some stakes that like, oh, the, this might not, our, our heroines might not get out of this heroines in a loose term there, right? So we get that. I just sort of thought it was a really odd kind of number, right? Because she thinks she's diving off of a platform into water and into freedom. And it's almost like a, an occurrence at Owl Creek, Owl Creek Bridge or something going on when we just see her dangle there. It's really off-putting. It, it really is just to show that there's going to be some sort of consequence i don't think it was needed i think they could have left it out and i would have been much more entertained and more likely to pay attention to the movie yeah it's a real downer at this point and like the movie has started to dip down we've had little pops back up here and there but like since we both reached for the gun like it's it's been a a cliff like we pop back up a little bit for i can't do it alone because that's a great number and a little Mm -hmm. you know flat plane for mr cellophane because it's a sweet number but it's dropping down and then we get to razzle dazzle and i know This is supposed to be this big turning point into act three of the movie. It's, you know, it's a, 
pivotal point in the in the play, right? And Richard Gere's basically saying, all we got to do is put on a good enough magic show, which is what everyone thinks happens in a courtroom anyway. And anybody who's ever really been in the courtroom will tell you, not so much. And only if like the judge has no willpower to stop it or whatever. But it's following that narrative. But my problem is, I just, I like this song too on the soundtrack. Not the movie soundtrack, just the original soundtrack. But mm-hmm. I do not dig Richard Gere's whole rap with this. Like, it just, it's lazy the way he lays it out. And then his little soft shoe business. I'm like, I know he worked really hard to try to do that, but it didn't work for me. I really, this was a real bummer because I wanted to like this because it was a, it's such a cool moment and it's supposed to be like a big thing, but it, it really doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, this is the equivalent of, of beauty school dropout moment. Yeah. This is the beauty school dropout moment. And he doesn't nail it. He doesn't nail it. He doesn't come in as the, the guy who's going to rescue the scene and he doesn't command the stage and he's on screen. Like if you can't command the screen in a number like this and be a man, and I'm going to say be a man because this is a very masculine part of the show where yeah. we need to see that. We, we need we need to see you see masculinity. This is not a part that can be played by a woman. Um no, it's the yeah. 20s. It's the setting. It's what we expect, right? He's supposed to be... I mean, he's already done that at the press conference. I mean, that's what I, I'm, I bump up against, Irina, is he, he dominated the press conference with We Both Reached for the Gun, even though I didn't care for his, his vocals. I thought he performed it great. And mm-hmm. then, this is just so kind of lazy, it feels like. It's, it's, it's just, a throwaway. Yeah, and it shouldn't be. And that's that's what I'm, I'm bumping up against. It's a throwaway moment, and it really doesn't need to be. Yeah, no, the tempo should be up a little bit more to give him a reason. I, and I do appreciate the little soft shoe because you're tap dancing in a courtroom. You're moving around everything. Um, you know, and the metaphor of it, yes. Him doing it looks like, and I know it's him doing it, but the way it's shot, it looks like we're cutting to Richard Gere's face and then a really talented dancer, then Richard Gere's face, then really talented dancer. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 100%. Yeah, that's it's just shot wrong. Like, give me more long shots of him doing it, and then I might have bought it. But again, it's just a flat performance. But I'll I'll say this for Renee Zellweger. When she gets on the stand as Roxy, she puts on a show. That's probably the best acting she does in this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it is. I, I don't even need to go any further with that. It is 100% her best acting in the entire movie. So, though we get the big twist, Velma's going to come in. She's going to read a diary entry. Doesn't look too good for Roxy because she's trying to save her own neck, right? And what what I find funny about this is this is just the kind of contrivance in courtroom dramas that now we all sort of take for granted. You have to remember this was written in the 1900s, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they came up with this idea of like, well, you give me my deal and I'll just go lie. And even though it's a lie and it doesn't get you what you want, I'm still out of jail, so whatever's. <laughs> but but it's the kind but it perfectly fits for Velma because she's the kind of manipulative woman that could pull something like that off. And we need to say because you've made a good point saying this is a you know, that was a big masculine moment. This is a time when masculinity is a big part of society and femininity is not something that is you know uh, so, what am I trying to say celebrated or you know even wanted in some ways. And you have this incredibly strong female woman who is totally pulling all the strings behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, she's she's smart enough to say, okay, well, I have to get my in. How am I going to get my in? How am I going to undermine her since she said, no, she's not going to do this with me? Um, so she's been hurt, uh, and she wants to find a way to strike back, and this is this is her way. Yeah, and then we do get to see Flynn Tamp dancing around it, and he, he does have a good redirect back, but I felt like I was, again, watching Richard Gere do something that, I've seen him do better in like primal fear and other stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he's just he's so bad, but the verdict's in Roxy's not guilty, but I love how her fame is upstaged by an accused mm-hmm. husband, murdering woman who shoots her lawyer on the courtroom steps. Oh, it's, fa- it's absolutely a fabulous moment. <laughs> well, it's good to end on a joke though. Right. Cause the whole point is Roxy is trying to manipulate her way into being famous through this you know, terrible tragedy that, most of which is her own fault, but whatever. It's still a tragedy. And and, and to, let's be honest. Let's not let's not put Fred like on some pedestal. He's a total jerk. <laughs> right? He may okay. deserve to be shot. He deserved a swift kick in the nethers, maybe, but not not to be shot. <laughs> but either way, whatever. She's trying to make the you know, most out of it, and really, she's trying to get the thing she always wants is fame. And the fact that it gets pulled out from under her by a woman who shoots her lawyer on the steps is a good joke. Oh, it's fabulous. The wonderful ending to it because it diverts all attention away from her instantly. And 
it wouldn't matter at that point what the verdict was. There was, there's, I mean, there's always going to be some, somebody bigger and better, and you know, a shinier thing to look at, and it, it just happens at the perfect time. I just think it's funny that something that again was written in the 1910s and 20s and, and has been famous for all these years, right? It's almost a hundred years now of this nailed something that is so a part of modern culture and has been for quite some time now is that we look at the real shiny thing until we're tired of looking at it. And then we look at the next shiny thing, right? It's just boom, ba boom, ba boom. And the fact that the people that wrote this nailed that so many decades before it really became a part of popular culture, I find to be neat and kind of fun that they, they are making commentary and it's probably why this movie made $300 million because it still resonates, even though it's set in a time that we can no longer even fathom. Right. And if we think about it um, and we do the math real quick, it, the story is 92 years old. Oh, wow. That's an old, yeah. I mean, 1927 was when the silent movie came out. So it's got a 92-year-old story. So even watching it today, it's still applicable. Um, that just spans over time. And I, I'm i going to hesitate as I say this and kind of question myself, but at the same time, I'm going to say this is a girl power movie. Oh, no, I totally agree. It's a girl power movie, but it also hits the things that happen that, you know, every decade there's a little bit more effeminating men in society. And this gives you some of that through the John C. Riley character who goes through that and then comes back and says, wait, no, 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 no. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a, a dad and I'm going to do all this great stuff. And then we have, you know, the juxtaposition of the Amos versus Billy Flynn, but um, it, it, it is a girl power movie at the end. And, one of the things that I like to go back and forth on is at the end, they're able to come to some sort of agreement. Well, and I think that's part of the message here is rather than step over each other to get where we want to go. Why don't mm -hmm. we work together? And they are better together. And th that's the thing is all of this has been foreshadowed from the beginning. You know, Velma was good on her stage, but by all tales of it with her sister, it was an even better act. And then when she does, I can't do it alone. She even plays it off like, I really can't do all this by myself. I can do a lot of good things, but I need a second. I need somebody else. It's like, you know, the great singers that are parts of bands or whatever. And then you take them out, they do a solo record. and It's kind of, eh. you know, sometimes that don't work. Right. Not everybody can be John Bon Jovi with Young Guns, too. But but most people just need to stay where they are. You know, Vince Neil needs to be a part of Motley Crue. She needs a second. You know, she needs somebody to be not really a second, but a one B, you know, and, and Roxy does too. Cause Roxy, you know, we see her do tryouts and it's like not next, you know, and it's cause she's got nothing about herself by herself that works, but you put them together. Yeah. There's something to that. And the yep, duo and, and they make a big splash and we get the big end, you know, where you got, you got people from the jury in the crowd, you got Billy Flynn, you got all these people. Cause it's kind of a review at the end. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the storyline bringing them together, you know, it is, it is a pairing. As you said, it was foreshadowed for the entire movie. I think Tay Diggs says it, he says, um, not one, but two, he references them. I don't know the exact quote, but he does reference them being the lady killers, so to speak. Yeah. So it, it is a selling point. Yeah. It's part of their act now, you know, that they can mm -hmm. sell themselves as this thing. And as we see, it goes over huge. So they, they all get what they want, you know, uh, which uh, narratively I'm like, so nobody learns a damn thing, you know, <laughs> through all this, except that if we manipulate together, we manipulate stronger, I guess. I don't know. I think maybe Fred learned something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Fred, Fred learned to not say anything, and then he got shot. Fred, Fred's yeah, dead. So. I mean, and poor Amos. You know, there's no resolution for that guy. He just gets left standing in the courtroom yeah. as everybody runs out, and he's standing in the courtroom there with Roxy. And it's one of those heartbreaking moments where, if he says, where she says, there's no baby. There never was yeah. a baby. Yeah. And she calls him an idiot. Which is, again... Roxy's not that smart. Maybe she could have played that off like there was no baby. I, I was just trying to not go to jail. Like if she'd played yeah. it a little sweeter, I think it would have landed better for me. The she plays it off so harsh. I'm like, yeah, he should run like far away from you. Yeah. I mean, at this point she could have been super sweet, stayed with her husband, had her career with Velma. And instead she just, 
she just nips it right in the butt and, to, and, and makes a fool of herself. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just the actor's portrayal of that part. <laughs> could be. It definitely could be. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Irina, what are yours for 2002 Chicago? Oh, I don't know. I'll watch it once. Watch it once just to say you did so that you can see the story. That's kind of my final thought on this. Um, and and maybe go into it with with open eyes, open eyes and ears, uh, knowing that you might not get exactly what you want and that not everything is what it seems. And, you know, that's kind of one of the notes that I totally forgot to mention throughout our review here, Jay, is at the end of the stage play, Mary Sunshine comes out and as a man takes her wig off and, and says, not everything is what it seems. And walks off stage. What a great moment. Gosh, they should have done something with that. Again, I go back to that. They, they could have done that. You know, because I'm such a musical lover, I'm just going to go with a medium popcorn. Not small, not extra large or large, but medium, which I don't think is that bad. You know, worth seeing, but um, don't buy it. Yeah, definitely on the rental side. I'll say this, <laughs> having never seen this or whatever, I'm glad I did watch it because now I kind of know what the context was of how it probably won the Academy Award, all this stuff. And mm-hmm. it introduced me to the music and the soundtrack. And now I want to see a stage production of it because it turned me on to that, which if that's the purpose of the movie success, you know, you made me want to see its original form now. So I'm down for that. A lot of the songs I like, I don't dig Renee Zellweger. I don't really dig Richard Gere's thing in this at all. But Tay Diggs is fun as the narrator popping it out. Queen Latifah is fun popping in and out of this thing. John C. Riley's sweet and kind of wholesome, or wholesome is not the right word for him. But you know, he's just sort of again that that no, he's every wholesome man. In this. He's, he's wholesome in this, but he's he's every man <laughs> and all that. But Catherine Zeta Jones steals the show as she should, and she's fun to watch. So it's definitely worth watching. It's not great but it's not awful either. So I'm going to give it medium popcorn as well, but not my, my medium popcorn where I feel like, Oh gosh, it could have been so much more. And I do think it could have been so much more, but eh, that if you turn your brain off to that and you just try to enjoy it for what it is, there's enough here to keep you going. There's a dip in it for sure. Where you go, go wash the dishes or pet the dog or something like that. Get a drink of water. <laughs> And come back for the courtroom, because even though Razzle Dazzle is kind of flat, you need that to see the end of it. And then the end is fun, so it's worth seeing. I'm glad I watched it, and I'll give it a medium popcorn as well. Well, Irina, thanks so much for coming on Filmstrip, being a part of the fun here. If you've got a podcast or anything else that you listen to you'd like to recommend, lay it on us. I have a friend who does a podcast called Words with Nerds that, it, you know, some of the review stuff that we do here, but um, really just talking about life. You can find it on iTunes, um, and it's Words with Nerds on iTunes. They're also on Twitter at Words with Nerds. Fantastic. And I do hope you will come back on the show again sometime. We'll talk something non-musical next time. Uh, Ooh, yay. On. So, yeah. So, but this was fun. It's a good introduction because this is your wheelhouse. So it's always good to have an expert on the show when we're talking about this. And folks, we thank you for joining us on this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find all of our episodes at filmstrippodcast.com. You'll also see all the platforms where you can download the show. If you download the show, subscribe to us. Please leave a positive review. It helps other people find the show. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at filmstrippod. Irina, how can people follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at um, Ising, E-Y-E-S-I-N-G, or on um, Instagram at I-E-Y-E dot nerd, N-E-R-D. And I'm at J. Skipworth on Twitter, and would love to interact with any of you. And again, we appreciate the support. So until next time, for Irina, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.